Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, sometimes it seems like the hardest part of building strong relationships is all the other people. Do you ever feel like that? And we're, we're in the middle of a series called Reaching Across, which shines a light on our need to build actively our relationships with other Christians. And I know that every one of us has dreamt of going to a church where we feel like we are embraced and loved and not alone. And the truth is some of us feel very deeply alone even sitting in this place right now. Some of you might be married and feel completely alone in your marriage. Some of you, all of your life, you've never known any other feeling than that you're the only person who loves you and cares about you. And so the truth is, that even when you hear this message that we are supposed to build relationships with other people, you look around at your life's experience, and maybe even the people sitting right around you today, you say, how am I supposed to do that when I'm living in a world filled with people who don't care about me, who are messed up, who are sinful and hurtful and judgmental and so on? And I think that's a pretty true observation. Sometimes... The hardest part about building community is the people you have to build it with. Amen? Let me hear the amen now. Come on, let's be honest, because I hear it a lot later on. You know it's true. Thank you very much. So what do we do about that? What do we do about these difficult people that fill our churches, fill our families, fill our workplaces, and annoy us and push us to really have a difficult time building relationships. Well, if you're a very simple person, you might just say, well, that's easy. Just hang around with people that you like and with people who like you. Go ahead and hang around only with people who share your view on things, who are like-minded, and that seems on the surface like it would work. Just reject from your life all those people who are very different from you or who haven't been very nice to you, have even a more stringent policy than the state of California. You know, they've got three strikes, you're out. A lot of us, it's like one strike, you're out. You mess with me one time. You betray me one time. You hurt me one time, and that's it for you. You are gone from my life. I push the button and... You get shot right out of the cockpit. And that's the way a lot of people have desired to live their lives. If you mess with me, even once, you have lost your chance to be a part of my life. And that's a very simple way of thinking. But the truth of it is, it doesn't really work because you'll never find anyone who will last through the final part of the audition. Everybody is messed up. And each morning when you look in the mirror to shave or brush your teeth, You're looking at another person who is just as messed up as the rest of the world. You would think that just getting together with like-minded people would solve this community issue, but it doesn't. I read a very startling thing some time ago. It said that an estimated 5% of the career missionary force every year returns back home from the mission field and quit altogether. Did you hear that? 5% of the global full-time missionary force packs their bags, and calls it quits every year. By conservative estimates, that's around 7,600 missionaries every single year who just say, that's it, I can't take anymore, I'm coming back home. And do you know that around 49 to 50%, that's half of all these returning missionaries who quit their jobs, they're returning because of relationship problems with their teammates in the 
in the field. That's a pretty startling thing. Half of those missionaries who call it quits. Now you would think people who signed away their lives to, to have the same mission, the same purpose in life, who are training together, living together, loving each other, who are one of the few familiar faces in a foreign land that if anybody could stick together, they'd be able to do it. But the truth is, even under those circumstances, it is very difficult for people to build meaningful and close relationships. I think the real problem is twofold. People stink, and we don't know what to do about that. That's why it's so hard to build relationships. People stink, and we just don't know what to do about that. I see so many relationships between men and women that break up for the stupidest reasons. And in the heat of the moment, in their self-centeredness, in their impassioned anger, they think their reasons are so sound and they have no idea how frivolously, how wastefully they have thrown away a good thing because they simply did not learn from Scripture and from the example of Jesus Christ how to do this thing called life. They assume wrongly that the problem is always the other person. And if they just change their partner, if they change their friends or their church, everything will be okay and nothing could be further from the truth. The real issue in relationships is portable because it begins inside of us. And that's why some of you might be on your sixth church and you're wondering, is it a global conspiracy that every church is out to get me? Who is the common denominator in that series of equations? You are X. (laughs) To harken back to our old days of algebra. You know, a lot of times in the Bible, the chapter divisions don't come at the right places. And I'm not the only one saying that. I'm not not the smartest Bible scholar in the world. But there are times when the chapter begins at a place that's really a continuation of another story. And that's the case with Romans 15. In order to truly appreciate what Paul is saying to the Romans here, you've got to look back at Romans chapter 14 and understand the conflict he's addressing. It was a very interesting situation. There seemed to be a rising in the church in Rome, two distinct groups of people. Or two main tensions. And this might seem funny to you, but this was serious business back then. There was a group of people who for some reason of conviction, one reason or another, decided to become vegetarians. They said, something bothers us about eating meat, so we're just going to stop. And if you've ever met a militant vegetarian, I tell you, those people feel very strongly about their choice. You can't talk them out. You could wave a delicious steak all you want. Mm, And that's not going to change them one bit. And on the other side of that issue were people who loved their meat and loved their freedom. Say, you know what? Don't you even start telling me what I can and cannot eat. Jesus Christ has given me freedom and I'm going to chow on everything I see and I likes me some meat. And so here are these two groups, the meat eaters and the vegans, and they can't stand each other and they're going to the same church. And every time they have the Lord's Supper, there are those people who only bring their vegetables and grains, and there are other people chomping down on a gyro, and they're looking at each other across the room going, those unspiritual, sickening people, call yourself a Christian. And it was dividing the church. There was another tension that was rising in that group. There were some people who thought they made a big deal out of holidays. You guys know anyone like that? Like, they start waiting and anticipating Christmas around 4th of July. They start getting the Christmas tree out. They... Big, big, you know, like special occasions are a really big deal to them. And there are other people who said, you know what? Jesus Christ has made every day sacred. Every day is holy unto the Lord. So it doesn't matter what day of the week or of the year it is. Every day is holy before God. 
And this, believe it or not, became a source of real tension in the church, and it was dividing people. There were some people who dressed casually to the worship service, and other people who came in their tuxedos and prom dresses, and they looked across at each other and said, how can you dress like that to church? How can you act like this is not a special day? And other people say, how come you only act like that on one day of the week and you act like a pig on all the other days of the week? And there were these huge fights going on over this issue. And Paul, hearing about this, having never visited the church in Rome personally, but hearing about this, he's very bothered by it. And so we pick up in Romans 15, verses 1 through 7, and here's what he's saying in response to all this. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Well, I'm well into the sermon, and I'll just give you the title now. It's simply this, Making Room for One Another, because that's really what we're talking about here. Paul sees these people ripping the church apart over issues that are not primary in importance. And the truth of the matter is that most relationships are torn apart by issues that are not primary in importance. I am amazed at how ready people are to throw away relationships. It sickens something deep in my stomach to see how lazy, how casual, how weak we are when it comes to sticking with other people. I'm sorry if that convicts you or even offends you. The truth is we live in a disposable culture where everything can be thrown away and replaced, even people. There are times when the Bible will even say it's legitimate to walk away from a relationship. And I understand that. But be very careful how you attach your relationships to your followership of Jesus Christ. They are very related. The way you follow Christ must have a direct bearing on the way you relate to other people. If it doesn't, then you are living two separate worlds, straddling two different arenas that must be brought into unity. And the first point Paul seems to be making here is, listen, we have to learn to make room for one another as flawed human beings. We've got to make room for each other. Do you really think that the room of your life only has room for perfect people? Are you serious in thinking that? Everybody you share this planet with is flawed and imperfect. They will hurt you. They will annoy you. They will get on your last nerve. They will betray you. And if you're looking for people who won't do that, I don't even know if you could live by yourself. Have you ever betrayed yourself? Have you ever made a January 1st vow to yourself and not kept it come January 2nd? Have you ever gotten so sick 
and tired of your flaws and your sins and your repetitive cycles that you just wanted to end it all? Have you ever stared in the mirror and said, this is the product of my character. I hate myself. You can't even keep from disappointing yourself, can you? I know that's true of me. I doubt that the greatest tension in our church is between vegetarians and meat eaters, between people who like holidays and people who don't. But the point is not the specific content of their arguments. What Paul is doing, if you read chapter 14, it's almost like he just summarily dismisses their argument. He goes, you guys are a bunch of idiots. Listen, you can eat meat or just vegetables, and either way you can still glorify the Lord. You can make a big deal out of one day or see all days as the same and still glorify the Lord. He's saying your fights are ridiculous because they're not about anything important. What's really important is not what divides you, but how you handle the divisions. It's not what you're fighting about, but how you fight that defines you as a person and determines the future of your relationship. And we are so quick to point out the things we're fighting about. You said this and you did this, but listen, it's how you respond to conflict that makes or breaks every relationship in your life. You know, I think we can be pretty nasty people, can't we? Any of you guys ever confront your dark side? Do you ever find yourself yelling at someone or shouting some obscenity in the car and you just come really face to face with your ugliness? Have you ever been so angry you stormed out of the room, went into the bathroom, looked in the mirror and you just saw this... And you're like, is that me? What is my problem? I want to hit myself. Have you ever found that part of you that it's so dark, if other people saw it, they'd run for the hills? I've got that side. I know some of you have that side. We've shared it joyfully together. You know it's there. Anyone who pretends like they don't know, what are you talking about? Dark side, I don't know. Yes, you do. It's right there under the surface. Give us the right circumstances, and it's amazing the darkness that comes out of us. And when we feel like someone has offended us or hurt us, or is just being plain stupid in front of us, you know, that's one of the, the offenses some people will make. You know, some of us get so upset because how can you be that stupid in my presence? Get away. Whenever that kind of thing happens to us, something very dark starts to come to the surface. It's like that, that terrible Spider-Man movie, number, Spider-Man 3. Fell asleep like six times watching that movie. But, <laughs> but you know that part when, when that one guy becomes a black Spidey? I don't even know what venom, I think. It's like that. There's that side in all of us that if it's just left to grow, it would frighten you. It's that side of us that makes us talk to another person with judgment and condescension. Using sarcasm and little sideways remarks and insults to belittle another human being. It's that side of us that employs body language to really blow off another person. It's that dismissive body language like, whatever. You know, that kind of body language that says, I don't respect you at all. It's like you have a sphincter on your face that's talking to me. I don't care about anything you're saying right now. Do you know what I'm, I know that's pretty graphic, but you know that feeling you have and your body language says it all. Are you done yet? Whatever. And you just completely shut down another human being with your pride. 
that side of us that makes us give somebody a cold shoulder. That intentional ignoring. Like you walk in, you're all friendly to everyone else, but you are purposefully ignoring the one person you should be walking up to. Girls are really good at doing this, I've observed. Hey, how you doing? Whatever. Hi. And it's amazing to me, the darkness that lives in the soul of the female. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. When you look at verse 2 and the advice Paul is giving, it's like a mirror reflection of the sin that he is addressing. Listen to what he says in verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Because what Paul was observing in the church is instead of thinking about our neighbor and the one who is weak and offensive, they're only thinking about themselves. They were using every power at their disposal to destroy the other person for that warm satisfaction of self-righteousness, for that cold comfort of a well-placed stab wound in another person's heart. You know what I'm talking about. That person has offended you, and you just get that one perfect situation, and you go, pow! <sighs> Feels good. Feels good to get my revenge. And we do that to each other. And Paul saw this happening among Christians, and he could not take it. You're not supposed to use the means at your disposal to hurt another person, to please yourself and walk away feeling good. Your aim must be to please even that person who has wounded and offended you, to build them up. And I love Paul's little device. He says this, we who are strong. He doesn't say which side of the issue is the strong people and the weak people. He simply says, we who are strong. Meaning, if you think you're so right and you're so strong, then join me in this attitude. He doesn't take sides in the fight, but he says, every one of you is of the impression that you have the moral high ground, that you are in the right and you are the one who has been offended. If that's you and you're so strong, act like it. Be one of the strong people and behave this way. And he gives this counsel. Make room in your heart for one another. I think it's a very important measure of a person's maturity, how they handle it when people offend them. I see some people, you know, you know what I'm talking about, some of these, these young kids these days, you just look at them wrong, it's like, I don't even know you. I was at the shopping mall not too long ago, I was just walking past, and some kid had this ridiculous, like, to me, ridiculous, I don't want to be that judgmental, but seriously, it was like the strangest look, and I, you know, it was like he's saying, everyone look at me, so I obliged him, I looked at him, I'm like, dude, that's one messed up look. And as I'm walking, my looks at me, he goes, he literally did this to me, he goes, like that. Like, it was like some kind of animal. Like this. And they're like, dude. And he goes, what you looking at, old man? First of all, that old man thing I, kind of got to me. But I'm like, geez, do I even know you? All I did was look at you and you're ready to fight me and we're strangers. How childish can you be? Seriously. You might have had your voice changed and hair is growing in funny places. That don't make you a man. You ready to fight a stranger over a look? Are you serious? Are you serious? Truth is, however, some of us have not evolved that far beyond that young man, have we? It doesn't take much to get us upset. One little comment, one little hurtful word, one ungenerous remark, and you're ready to fight. I'm gonna, how do I get this? I want you to look in the mirror for a moment and say, does that reflect? The picture of Jesus Christ. 
whose image we are privileged to bear. I think it's also a very strong measure of a church's health, how we handle conflict in our midst. I don't think our church is seen as beautiful because of the way we handle ourselves in the good times, but it's how we handle ourselves in the midst of division and conflict that is a measure of us as a body. When you look at verse 7 there, can you flash that up? You see this beautiful verse, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And I want to focus on that word welcome. That word welcome in the Greek is a very beautiful word. It, it literally translated, the Greek word, not that you care about, is proslambano, which is a conjunction. And if you bring it together, it literally means this, taking into oneself. Like an amoeba. You, you guys ever see those, those graphic illustrations of amoebas? Comes around and just goes, and just absorbs, and you're inside that amoeba now. That is what we're talking about. Making room for one another. And here's a great illustration or story to help you understand Paul's heart in saying this. Let's say it's Sunday evening. Hypothetically, it's a time when you just don't want anyone to bug you. You just want to be with your family. Hypothetically speaking. All right, let's just say that's your golden hour. And you've just settled down. You've got your favorite snack in front of you. Your children are all around you. And you're just ready to relax. And the phone rings. And you pick it up and it's a friend you haven't seen in a while, an old friend. And they say, listen, I'm so sorry for the short notice, but I've had to come into Chicago unexpectedly. I'm at the airport about 30 minutes away from your house. Can I crash at your place tonight? Now, At that moment, how do you feel? Let's just be real honest. I don't care who this friend is. How do you feel at that minute? It's a bittersweet mixture of emotions, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you're like, oh, my friend. On the other hand, you're like, dude, this is really rude. It's inconvenient. You don't just call me on your way to my house from the airport and I'm not really ready. The house is a mess. Your wife is staring daggers at you like, we're not ready for guests. I'm going to look like a loser and all this. And she's yelling at you. All the kids are miserable now. And this beautiful, relaxing evening at home has been morphed into a chaotic mess of trying to make room for this person in your life. That's exactly the emotional context that Paul's talking about. You're minding your own business, just trying to be a human being, and this person invaded your life with a very ungenerous gesture. It inconveniences you. It, it's rude. It's not protocol. And yet, when you look at who this person is to you, you have no choice. If I ever moved out of town to another church, I won't do it unless you fire me, but if I did it and one of you came into town, I would roll out the red carpet for you because of who you are to me. That's got to factor in. Not just what they did or what they said, but who they are to you. And so as a result of that, what will you do? You will scramble to make a good space. Now, the way you host this person is a measure of your relationship, isn't it? I have, because of ministry and the nature of things, I've been put in that position to be that rude guest who calls at the last minute. Because sometimes I'm rolling into town and I go, oh, I know this person. I don't want to stay at some gross hotel or retreat center. I want to stay with my friend. So I call, and they're usually very gracious on the phone, but I know the scene unfolding at their house after we hang up. And when I get there, I've experienced two different kinds of hosts. One kind of host pushes away all the stuff in their laundry room and lays out a sleeping bag and says, it's the best we could do, but I hope it's comfortable. And I'm laying there at night, shooing away the spiders, going, oh man, I would have been better off at the retreat center. 
Another kind kicks their little children out of their bedrooms, gives me the softest bed in the house. And they say, you know, we're probably sure you're tired, so there's a private bathroom for you. You go ahead and make all the stink and the noise you want. We're going to be on the other side of the house. Here's the, the kitchen. We stocked it with everything. Here's a shelf where anything on this shelf, you go ahead and eat. And they're, they're make, going out of their way to make room in their lives for you because you matter to them. That is the heart of Paul's teaching. I know that a lot of the people in this room will disappoint or hurt you at some point in your life. But as you compare what they've done, you must also have in view who they are to you. And you must be willing to make some room in your life for the protocol violations of your brothers and sisters. Are you with me? So the question is, how do you do that practically? And Paul points out a couple things I'll just review quickly with you. How do you do this exactly, this making room? Well, Paul doesn't leave us to guess. He says, you've got to consider Jesus Christ, first of all. Who better to teach us how to deal with being offended than a person that 1 John 3, 5 tells us had no sin in him? He never did anything wrong, but he was brutally tortured and killed for the sins of other people. Let's just raise your hand. How many of you guys could knowingly go to your grave for a crime that someone else committed? Think about that for a second. Do you guys ever watch Prison Break? Didn't it drive you nuts that Lincoln Burroughs was going to go to his death for a crime he didn't commit? It drives me nuts. The idea of people on death row today facing death for something they didn't do makes me completely loony in my heart. I can't imagine what that's like. Jesus Christ was the only person who ever felt that indignation and deserved to feel it. How did this Jesus respond to the offenses of others? What do you think it would have been like for him to be hanging on the cross and hear the taunts of all the onlookers? Hey, there's the king of the Jews. If he's so powerful, why doesn't he just come down from there and save himself? If that were me... Wouldn't you just for a second be like, you want me to come down there? Bow, bow, boom, boom. And I'll run down, just punch him in the nose and go back up. Just to show him, ha, 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 ha. I could if I wanted to. This is for your own good. But in keeping with the prophecy in Isaiah, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, there he went, like a sheep to its slaughter, quiet. They say in the slaughterhouse, there's an eerie silence as these animals know they're going to die and they don't even bother bleeding. Why waste your last bit of energy making some futile noise? He quietly hung there, knowing they were wrong and he was right. And they were hurling insults about things he could so easily do, but he stayed on for their sakes. You've heard it before. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was his love for you and me. What would it have been like To hang there and listen to all that, know that you could come down and just stay and bite your tongue. This is the example of Jesus Christ, and He did it for you and me. How dare we? Because someone insults us. Each one of us, is we deserve to be insulted. Who are we to shout at the world, no one should look down on me? What have we done to be above reproach? What have you and I done to make us Teflon-coated and bulletproof to the insults of humanity? Only Jesus had that right, and he declined it for the sake of others. You want to know how to handle that emotion? You're never going to be able to handle it looking at the other person and what they did. 
You'll only be able to handle it looking at Jesus and what he did for you and me. That is the only place where your eyes will find comfort and inspiration high enough for the task. Paul also says you have to look at the scriptures. Because in the scriptures, look at it, where is it? Uh, Verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. He says that if you look at the Bible consistently, you get some very important things from it that strengthen your life. You get instruction, which is, what do I do? That's a very simple question. And the truth is, you don't really know the answer to that as well as you think you might. I really mean that. There are times when I think I should know what the right thing to do is, but then I get put in a situation and I do the very opposite thing. Many people whom I counsel, they say, this is what I did. And I say, how could you possibly think that's the right thing to do? The Bible teaches the exact opposite of what you just did. We have to look to the Bible with humility to say, I can't presume been there and done that. Some of you leaders who are in the membership class, you didn't really study the material. You figured blah, 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 been there, done that. I know all this Christianity stuff. So you kind of knew it and you flunked the quiz. You want me to flash the names on the screen? or Maybe, maybe not. But listen, you think you know, but unless you look with humility at the real words of Scripture, you don't know Jack. The Bible speaks, and it speaks clearly to us. It instructs us in what is the right thing to do. And I'm surprised at how many Christians assume they know, but they do everything other than what the Bible teaches. Look to it for instruction. And then it says, you're going to get endurance. Do you guys ever see the Japanese game show, Endurance? It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I think only Japanese can come up with a show like this. It's nuts. I saw one episode where here's what they did. They had a bunch of guys laying down on the, on the beach right at the surf. And the water would wash over as the tide came in and cover their faces. They had clips that held their nostrils wide open. So the water could just flow freely in. And there were guys above them just pouring down pepper powder onto their nostrils before the tide came in. And whoever could last the longest in that terrible situation would move on to the next round. It was the most hilarious thing I've ever seen. I watched it like six times this week. On YouTube. Now listen. That's something that we have lost in the church. Because everything is so disposable, when it gets hard, we can just crumple this one up, walk away and go to another one. This friendship is not working. I'll get another friend. This girlfriend is just not doing it for me. I'll get me another one. Everything is disposable. So why learn endurance when you can learn replacement? That's our psyche today, isn't it? Paul says, you don't have any idea what God wants for us. He doesn't want you to just run from everything tough and find a new one. He wants you to learn to stay. Do you realize what a lost thing that is for us? Stay. Fight through it. Trust the Lord. Stop running from everything. And he says, if you do it, you'll also find in Scripture wonderful encouragement that produces hope. You know what's one of the most encouraging and hope-producing truths in the Scripture? That this screwed-up world is not the end of the story. Some of us may die in a life that is never perfect. But here's the good news of Scripture. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, this screwed-up earthly life is not the final chapter in any of our stories. But there will be another chapter after this one that will never end, and it will be perfect. 
It will be life as it was always meant to be experienced. And the Bible holds out for us this glorious hope that you can endure this and get through this because it will get better someday and justice will actually be served one day. That produces real hope. Some of us will not get our justice on this planet. There are people who took from us everything we cared about and they will not pay a price down here. They will take from us everything and go on to have a better life than us, but justice will be served. That is the hope that we have in our lives. The last practical thing is that we pray. Look at verse 5. Suddenly, Paul's no longer just talking to the Romans. His language shifts into the language of prayer. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, now I've told you what you're supposed to do, I'm going to pray for you. Because he knows that the final mile cannot be run on our own strength. We must be carried over the finish line by the power of God. So he says, may God grant you this. May he give you the ability to live in harmony with one another. This verse encourages me that I'm driving the right make and model of car. It says, in accord with Jesus Christ. That's great. Listen, what he's saying is this. God has to give you this ability to overlook the sins of others and make room in your heart. We've held out the biblical example, the historical example of Jesus Christ, and you know it in your head, but when that person snickers at you, when that person insults you, when that person is just acting as dumb as a box of rocks in your viewing, what are you supposed to do? How do you find the inner power not to do what you feel like doing? The only way you'll find it is if God grants it to you. And so the final step is not just head knowledge, it is inner transformation through prayer. You ask God to make you a bigger person. Because if you don't get that power, you will never make room in your life for anyone else. And as a consequence, you will become that person that no one can make room for either. You are like a porcupine in a balloon factory. You're just not going to be welcome because everywhere you go, you pop stuff. You need to learn to make room, but you also need to be empowered to make room by the Holy Spirit of God. This is where many of us are probably stuck. We know. In fact, you may have even slept through this sermon because it's so familiar to you. But here's the last mile. Are you praying that God will enlarge your heart? Let me wrap it up by looking at the last two verses and and considering Why is it so important for us to make room? My father-in-law is a choir conductor. I'm not particularly fond of choral music or concerts, but I've gone to my fair share because of, shall we say, family unity. That's okay. But I've gotten quite a bit of insight looking at choirs and listening to choirs, and here's something that I could point out. If you gathered the 50 best soloists in Chicagoland and put them together, you wouldn't necessarily have a very good choir. In fact, unless they learn to sing with each other, it would be the worst sound you've ever heard. 50 prima donnas and divas all trying to shout over one another, proving to the world, I'm the best there is. I should be in the first seat. I should get the solo performance. See, the beauty of the sound that a choir makes is not in the individual talent of each singer. 
It is in their ability to sing with one another, make room for the harmonies and the melodies, so that it all works together to produce a final whole sound where truly the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Do you get that? The beauty of this church is not that we'll have 200 powerful, obedient, individual Christians who don't give a crud about each other. The strength and beauty of this church, its fragrance, will be whether these imperfect, flawed 200 people can make room for one another so that somehow, mystically together, we 200 mediocre people can make something work that feels like home. That is the body of Christ, and that is to Jesus Christ and to His Father, music to their ears. Look at what it says there in verse 6. That together with one, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It can be said that while there may be a hundred voices in a choir, the choir as a whole has a distinctive sound, a voice, a collective voice, if you will. And that is our calling too. You know, when you have a lot of kids, you learn this very vividly. Because sometimes my kids individually have no problem with us, but they are fighting like cats and dogs. And they come to us going, Hi, Mommy, I love you. And we just want to smack them. I don't really love you right now. You're being mean to your brother and sister. Don't brown nose me, buttering me up with all your, I'm the perfect daughter. Get along with your brother and sister. That's all we ever asked of you kids. Does it work, parents? When one of your kids is making their bed and doing their homework and brushing their teeth and in secret they're kicking their brother or sister behind your back, does that appeal to you at all? Does it? The beauty of this church, its fragrance in God's nostrils, is when he looks at us and as imperfect and flawed as we are, we make room for each other. Final illustration I'll offer you came from watching traffic in Indonesia and wondering how more people don't get killed in the streets of Jakarta and Bandung. You got trucks, motorcycles, pedestrians. Some of these mopeds have a family of five riding on them. It's a 200cc moped, and you've got five people on it. Crowded streets, people with baskets on their heads. There's nobody respecting traffic laws or nothing. Three lanes, eight cars. This is the way it is. And yet somehow there's a truck driving through an alley in a crowded market and no one gets run over. I'm waiting for the screams and the blood and the grinding bones and you don't hear it. And as you observe it from a cafe, what you see is that every unit on that street is acting like a blood corpuscle, just bending, moving, flowing, so that they know I'm not going to win a battle with the truck I just got to move a little. And you just make the slightest adjustment and that truck will be past you. And this is the body of Christ. We've got to learn to make room for one another's imperfections and difficulties. Or we'll never have the church which God envisioned when he called us together. Amen? Why don't we just bow together? I've ended freakishly early for me. I'm feeling a little Frankian. I think this is good. It's the Lord's will that we should respond to him in this. This is one thing to hear me rant and rave, but I think the Lord has business with each of you.
just as he had with me all week. Are you one of those people who, it only takes a look, a word, and you're ready to fight? I think the Lord would have me say to you with all the love in my heart, who do you think you are, really? If Jesus, who had no sin, could tolerate our offenses, who do we think we are to be so ready to fight and crush others for the wrong they've done to us? To you, the Bible says, the living God says, make room in your heart for those who have offended you. Now, you know you'll find that example in Jesus. You'll find that instruction in the Bible. But at this moment, I believe some of us just simply need to pray, be humble before God and say, I don't have the power to do what you're saying. I know it's right, but I can't. So God, help me. I've got to learn to make room for other people in their imperfections. However it is that God has been moving in your heart, we're going to let the piano play, and just for a few minutes, maybe five minutes or so, I'm going to invite you to just respond to the Lord and spend some time in His presence. And I believe He's going to do a work with you right now. Let's do that. pray together Lord your word is like a clear mirror in which we see a true reflection of the people that we are and reflected against the truth of this scripture we confess before you that we are so different from you in our hearts we are so quick to fight you are so quick to forgive And we just pray, make us more like you. Teach us at harvest to make room for one another in our lives, in our hearts. Even when the other person has broken some rule or hurt our feelings, teach us to be like Jesus. Make room in our hearts for that person. And as we obey you in this, we seek your strength and power because we know what to do, but we can't seem to do it. Change our inner being. Transform us inside to have the heart of Christ. And Lord, as a result of all of this, we pray that you would form at this church a real sense of home and family. We pray that this will bring glory to you. For in the end, that is why we exist. May we do this for your sake, for your honor, and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.